in 2 Samuel. So if you can open up there. And it's just flopping around. That's no good. Thank you. All right. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Hopefully without flopping. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Look at verse 12. Now, I had a great question on Sunday. It was like, well, you did the first half of 2 Samuel 5, two Sundays ago, what about the second half? And I said, we'll get there. Yeah, but we went to chapter six. I know, we're coming back. I'll explain why here in just a minute, but look at verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter five. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Listen, he had exalted his kingdom. God exalted David's kingdom, and he did it for the sake of his, that is, the Lord's people, Israel. It's a powerful verse. David realized that the Lord established. Think of it this way. God knows, we realize. That's how it works. God establishes because he already knows he's got the plan in play. We come along. We begin to comprehend. We understand as we walk with him. He knows. We realize. Now, one of the great realizations in the Bible is that nothing in this word is redundant. Nothing in the Bible is superfluous. Nothing is incidental. Unlike many of my research papers in college, there is no filler here. Did you ever do that if you ever had to write a paper, high school or college, and, and you, you have the main stuff, and you're like, okay, I gotta write a five-page paper, and I got two full pages. <laughs> what do you do? You fill, you stuff. You bring in all kinds of stuff, you know, and you use big fonts. God doesn't use big fonts. He doesn't have to enlarge the size of his font to make the grade. But this is, this is God's word to us, and if you just listen to this over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter's writing about our salvation and he says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. That's that's what we see here. Careful searches and inquiries as they sought to know, Peter writes, what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, that is the ancient prophets, that that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I love that verse. That's just kind of one of those, things into which angels long to look, things that angels want to understand, seek to know. So God knows, we realize, and angels wonder. And that's kind of how this works. By the way, speaking of angels, we're probably gonna hear a few rustling, rustling about before our study is done tonight. That's just a little teaser for you. But we're gonna go back now and cover some ground that some might consider filler. 
I mean, if you read through, just read through chapter five, those first 12 verses, this is profound. David takes Jerusalem. This is a big deal. And then you read on, okay, it's war with the Philistines. What's next? Oh, chapter six, peril in moving the ark. Ooh, let's talk about, let's read about the ark. And chapter seven, God saying, I'm gonna build you a house, David. Then you get to chapter eight and it's kind of like, well, okay, some more filler, a little more warfare there. Let's move on, get to something else. I like to hit major themes on Sundays. That's, by the way, why we're going back, Todd. It's why we're coming back to this right now because major theme of Jerusalem, chapter five, major theme of the ark, chapter six. Sunday, I'm, 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 we're gonna skip chapter seven tonight. We do the rest of five and do eight because chapter seven is so important for our theology. And I assume that you all will be there, but a lot of our fellowship, that's the best time for them. And so I want maximum reach. Maximum reception, so chapter seven will be on Sunday. But then again, it leaves us with, from time to time, some in-between teachings. I, I thought about this this week. Uh, you know, we're gonna finish up chapter five, we'll do chapter eight. But mark this, the in-betweens are not so in-between. The in-betweens are not so in-between. Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word, which means wherever we are in scripture, there's something there. And I have discovered, and many of you have too as well, you've discovered that it's these in-betweens where we really get tagged. You know, we get the big themes, that's great, and we love, because it's all God's word, but then you come to a section that you're like, okay, what's here? Well, God knows, we will realize, angels wonder, but the way that we come to that realization, those profound revelations, is often in the in-betweens. David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David comes to this. He realizes this. Even if he doesn't always act like it. Look at verse 13. Meanwhile, see, there's the problem right there. David realized what God did. Meanwhile, I mean, it's the meanwhiles in our lives that tend to trip us. Oh, I had the greatest Sunday morning. I had the most wonderful service. We were really in the word of God. Worship was off the charts. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, as if he didn't have enough at that point. And more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammuah and Shobab, Natan and Shlomo. Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, and Nepheg, and Yaphia, Elishama, Iliada, and Eliphalet. Okay, the Lord had pre-decreed through Moses regarding a king that he shall not multiply wives for himself. Deuteronomy 17, verse seven. Why? Or else his heart would turn away. So the Lord not only gives, the, gives the, the rule, he gives the why. It's because it'll turn the heart. And now we get to this point and we start to understand, oh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 was not superfluous. That wasn't just an afterthought. God knew what was coming. And by the way, David's heart's gonna turn away, even if only temporarily. You want a heart that stays true, a, a mind that is pure after the heart of God? 
then you keep your eyes on God and you note what he teaches. And he says, don't multiply wives. Well, David can handle it. He, he does it. And his heart is going to turn away in just a few chapters from here. In the ancient world, we've talked about wives and concubines were oftentimes political pawns. Ladies, I, I, you know, I, all, I can only apologize so much for how my kind has treated your kind in the past. But the truth is, women were pawns and used by men, especially in the ancient world. And so politically, a king would give a daughter to another king to seal a deal, you know, to have peace between the nations. So oftentimes, these, these many wives and concubines were simply gifts from one king to another. They didn't really have anything to say about it. They just had to go. If dad said, you're going, you're with him. So international diplomacy was the idea. And I think perhaps many of these wives of David were about politics. But some of them were about passion. David, as we know, is a passionate man spiritually. His heart was after God's own heart, like God's heart in a way. But in the flesh, even spiritual passion in the flesh becomes lust. And David has a lust problem. Note this, the first five sons that are born to David in Jerusalem, the first five are born to him through Bathsheba. And we see their names here, Shemua, Shobab, Natan, and, and Shlomo. <laughs> I just like calling Solomon Shlomo. Take him down a notch. Shlomo, so there, there are the first, and you might say, well, wait, Rick, that's only four. So the first five were born to him in Jerusalem. Yeah, the first son was not named. In fact, the first son would die. David and Bathsheba's firstborn without a name was the result of the wages of sin, and the wages of sin is death. And we'll come to that story in short order as well. But what's amazing, if you just look at this list of the four surviving of David and Bathsheba, two of these boys, numbers four and five, that is Natan and Solomon, are going to be in the lineage of Messiah. You Bible students know this. Through Solomon, David's son Solomon, Jesus is the rightful legal heir to David's throne. Because from Solomon's line all the way down, we end up at Joseph. Now we know Joseph was not his biological father, but he was his legal father. And so legally speaking, Jesus would have a right to the throne. You Bible students also know the only problem was that that line was cursed. Get down to a guy named Jeconiah, and God cursed the line at the times of Jeremiah, and no one in that line could then therefore be king. But there was another line, and that is the line that runs from David and Bathsheba to David's son, Natan, all the way down to his mother, Mary. And so Jesus is the rightful genetic heir of David through Mary. The, the legal heir, Matthew chapter one, verses six and seven tells us, the genetic heir, Luke chapter three, verse 31 describes. And that becomes remarkably significant later as God made a way that even when the legal line gets cursed, the true genetic line remains firm. But when you look at this, and just thinking about these names and all these wives of David in this short little section here, shouldn't the lineage of the spotless lamb be spotless? You'd think. I mean, it'd be nice if it was an untainted line, but you've got Perez. Perez in the line of Messiah, son of prostitution. His mother, uh, Tamar, is named in that line. And then what about Boaz? His, his mama was Rahab, 
the one-time harlot of Jericho. And, and then he goes on to wed another outsider, a Moabite named Ruth. And all these are named. And of course, then there's Bathsheba. And in that legal line, Matthew chapter one, verse six, it says, Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah, Matthew remembers, still there. But she's gonna become mother to both Solomon and Natan in the genealogy of Christ. And you know what? It's perfect. It's perfect. That's the way it should be. God introduced himself to and into blemished humanity via a spotless son to save us. That's the whole deal. Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He gets us. He entered the spotted line of humanity, though perfect. Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive help and mercy, find grace and help in time of need. So he came in among us that we might be confident to come to him. I'm not telling you anything new, but as you look at the lineage of David, it's already messy. It's already multiple wives and sons. And by the way, once we get past about chapter 10 in 2 Samuel, most of the international fighting will be over and we're gonna start into the infighting in the family of David. And it gets really messy and dysfunctional from that point forward. Well, with that in mind, I wanna return to a concept we looked at on Sunday and expand a little bit because the word does, and that is the insight of inquiry. If you got that point on Sunday, one of the points was the insight of inquiry. Check this out, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim, or the valley of the lowlands. So this is a, a, a depression that is southwest of Jerusalem toward Philistine country, and they amassed there as a great threat to David. Why are they doing this? They're furious. They're angry. They now see that not only has David, who they thought might be an ally that they could turn against Israel, now he's turned on them. Now he is fully allied with Israel, and they've made him their king, and the Philistines are going to take him out. That's their desire. You might remember that the last battle the Philistines had against Israel ended in a great victory for the Philistines. They killed the last king on Mount Gilboa. They took out King Saul. So before David even gets his armor on, he prays. David inquired of the Lord, verse 19, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Go get them, David. Now, I don't know where you could possibly get more confidence than God saying, go get it. Go do it. You've got this. Go take them out. This, this is great. David inquires of the Lord and gets a confident answer. And he's now gonna go into battle without question. 
without fear or trepidation because God said, I'm gonna give them into your hand. This is a done deal. Confidence in the Lord. And I remember if a certain little house church, little home group, if you will, remembered this inquiry and, and learned from it at a later date in Jerusalem as the Philistines are down there in that valley of depression and they are threatening David and the city of David and all Jerusalem. So Peter and John came back from the threatenings of the Sanhedrin and they met up with their home group and they told them what had taken place and they prayed, Acts 4.29, oh, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, the insight of inquiry isn't just for information. We don't inquire of the Lord simply for information. It's confidence. It's confidence in the Lord for the battles before us. And this is what David has. And it's what the, the small beginnings of the early church had as they prayed to the Lord. They, they had a great boldness, a confidence. David has that. And so David came, verse 20, to Baal Perazim and defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named that place Baal Perazim. I love how the Bible says that and goes on and we go, okay, what does that mean? Baal Perazim means Lord of the Breaks. Lord of the, not B-R-A-K-E. I had to have a break job last week. It was kind of a bummer, but not, not that kind of. Lord of the Breaks, Lord of the Breakthrough. He is the Lord for anyone who has ever said, oh, give me a break. <laughs> Lord, help. He is the Lord of the Breaks or of the, the Breakthrough. As the verse suggests, he broke through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of water. So, so Perazim, really, it, it speaks of a bursting of water. It's like a torrent of water, a rushing of water that is powerful and unstoppable, like, like a tidal wave. And so David names this place, you know, Lord of the tidal wave, Lord of the, of the breakthrough. And, and when you find yourself in a situation where you're not sure how you're gonna get through, or maybe you're dealing with a person and you're not sure how you're gonna get through to them. Don't forget he's the Lord of the breakthroughs. He breaks through in a way that we can't. You're trying to talk to a brother or a sister or a friend about Jesus and they just won't listen. You can get all frustrated or you can inquire of the Lord because he's the Lord of the breakthrough. He's the one who gets through to people. You, you may not be able to. You may not have the words you may not have the, the dynamic. He does. Don't forget this. This is the God who comes on like a flood, as with David here in the Valley of Rephaim. He wipes out the, the Philistines. David recognizes this is the hand of God. This is the hand of the Lord. And he's the one who breaks through by the power of his spirit. I pray all the time, Lord, give me more faith in the power of your spirit. Help me to trust more confidently that you will do what you said you would do. The Lord establishes, we realize. God knows, we come to understand, right? And so, Lord, help me trust that your spirit is capable of doing something here I cannot do. Remember what Jesus said in John 16, 8? 
When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. These are all things that are way out of my hands, way out of your hands. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He breaks through when the foe seems insurmountable. I think of the psalm that sometimes is misunderstood. Psalm 121, verse one, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? It's not gonna come from the mountains. The mountains are the problem. The mountains are insurmountable, no pun intended. You can't get over that. You're looking and lifting up your eyes and saying, how can I deal with this massive mountainous issue? He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so I look up and I see this difficulty, this impossibility, but I have confidence in the Lord. That's the inquiry. That's what comes of of praying. But is it just me or does someone else see a little problem here in verse 20? Baal perazim? Shouldn't it be Yahweh perazim? You know, Yahweh the I am of the breakthrough, that would be great. Name it Yahweh Perazim, but he names it Baal Perazim. Baal is the generic Hebrew word that they use for the false Canaanite gods. We've seen this. Judges chapter two, verse 11, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. There were all kinds of Baals. They would put the name Baal first before some attribute of one of the pagan gods and Baal meant Lord or master. Judges 3, verse seven, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtarot. 1 Kings 18, 18, Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. David, why are we calling this Baal perazim? Now I'm gonna cut David a little slack here. He may be calling it Baal Perazim because the name Baal, while it's used of these foreign gods, it also can be used to speak of Lord, although it's, it's rarely ever used to speak of God. You know, we, we will refer to him as Yahweh, Hashem, Adonai. When was the last time you referred to him as Baal? But, it, you know, it, it, maybe he was going for more of a generic Here's the thing, I'm not saying that David was honoring Baal in this, but we can become so comfortable with our culturally generic terms, like God. And people will say, and I grew up hearing, as many of you did, Jehovah, Allah, it's just different names for the same God. No, no, no more than Baal is a name for God. These are completely, you, you, can't, you can't even compare Allah with Yahweh, with Yahushua, with Jesus in the Bible. You can't compare the two. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse five, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, he says, and many lords, and Paul's talking about rulers and principalities in the heavenly places that we don't even understand, He says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. One God, one Lord, who by the way are one, 
And our God has a name and his name is Jesus. Even if the pronunciation of Yahweh, which I've told you, Yahweh may not be the correct pronunciation. It could be Yav, it could be Yehovah or Yehovah. We don't know. We're not sure exactly how it used to be pronounced. But we can say Jesus. And if you wanna get really Hebrew, Yeshua, that's fine too. But our God has a name. First Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh. God was. Was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Philippians 2 verse 10, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? I can't say that verse enough. Look at verse 21. The reason I mention this is it says they abandoned their idols there, that is the Philistines did, so David and his men carried them away. What'd they do with them? Why, why are they carrying off these idols? Now, we don't know. There's, there's no immediate answer. It's not talked about after this, but where did those idols end up if not back home in some of their tents? See, where Jesus is not named, it is really easy to start carrying around the gods of culture or the gods of assumption. And without raising your hand, how many of you grew up hearing Allah and, and Jehovah are just two different names for God? How many of you heard, you know, the three major world religions all share the same God, which is a big, fat lie. Judaism and Christianity share the same God, although we understand God as revealed in Christ the Son. Islam, it is not the same God. And when we, when we make things generic, as tends to happen in culture, then we carry around ideas that are not the God as revealed to us in the Bible through his son Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. Well, verse 22. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. They just can't seem to get enough. So when David inquired of the Lord, he inquires again. He said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees, the indication is I'm doing something different this time. Why would he do it differently? Well, for us application wise, he's not always gonna do the same thing. Why do I need to keep inquiring of the Lord? I inquired last time and this is what he did. Yeah, he may do it differently this time. Why? So I'll trust him. So I'll take him at his word and I'll pay attention to his leading. Don't, don't assume past battle plans for future battles. Don't assume what worked before is gonna work again. You take it to the Lord. You inquire of the Lord for confidence that he has a way. And it's just fascinating to me that the first time he says, yeah, just go up against him. So he goes up and he wins. This time he says, no, 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 don't go up. Circle around behind them. And so we gain insight by inquiry for today. For today, not yesterday's insight or the day before's insight. Prayer is a dynamic and things may change. God doesn't change, but his direction may for us and in our lives. So he says, circle around behind them and watch this, so cool, verse 24. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. 
For then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. And David did so just as the Lord had commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Getzer. He just takes them down. Now listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this. As the rabbis have it, and it is a very pretty conceit if it be true, the footsteps of angels walking along the tops of the mulberry trees makes them rustle. So Spurgeon's perspective was the rustling in the trees, the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, as our passage puts it, was the footsteps of angels. That's a cool thought. It's a powerful thought to think of God's army marching there. And Spurgeon goes on and says, that was the sign for them to fight. When God's cherubim were going with them, when they should come, who can walk through clouds and fly through the air, led by the great captain himself, walking along the mulberry trees and so make a rustle by their celestial footsteps. Cool. Angels in the treetops. What do we do when we hear the rustling What was David told to do? You shall act promptly. Go around behind them and wait till you hear the rustling. Wait till you hear the sound of marching. And it's very explicit in the language. It's gonna sound like, shoom, 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 in the tops of the trees. When you hear that, act promptly, he says. The King James translation says, bestir thyself. When you hear the sound, get stirred up. The word is tekaras, and it means to move out, to be decisive, to sharpen, or to stir. I think about what Paul said to Timothy, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Stir up when you hear the sound of the marching. Stir up when there is a a rustling above. See, Jesus' people, we're not called to charge ahead of the Lord. We are invited to inquire of the Lord in prayer, by his word, until we hear the stirring of the Lord above us. And that's when we get stirred. That's when we get prepared to go above the treetops. We're gonna talk about that on Friday night. Well, after David took Jerusalem, chapter five, and now subdues the Philistine threat through the rest of the chapter. After, in chapter six, we saw that he brought the ark up to Jerusalem. We're skipping chapter seven because he's gonna begin to dream of building a house for the Lord, but now we're gonna jump ahead to chapter eight. And again, this is more of the the insight of the in-between, the significance here. And after all of this has happened, all these things that I've mentioned, What we begin to see happening in chapter eight is something that the federal government can't seem to get done. David now secures the borders, verse one. (laughs) Now after this, it came about that David had defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. Literally, it translates, David took the bridle of the mother city from the hand of the Philistines. He, he, He removed the ability, the control, the power of the Philistines at this point. And honestly, going forward, except for a few last gasps, the Philistines will become weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker until around the time of the Babylonian captivity when they will disappear completely. And they will never again be a people, a nation on planet Earth. 
we've talked about over the years, and, and I, you know, with, with, with deep compassion for those who suffer in Palestinian territories, and there are many who are pawns of their government and pawns of their leaders, but Palestinian is not Philistine. It never was, and the Philistines cease to be a people, and David followed them by Solomon. They're the two that finally put the Philistines down to be non-players in the world. Verse two, he, that is David, defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground and he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. We read that and we read it from a 21st century mindset and we say, wow, that's just brutal. Actually, it's merciful. He let a third live, you know? He could have wiped out all of Moab, but he allowed a third to exist and to pay tribute and to be a vassal state to Israel. I remind you that according to Zechariah chapter 13, only a third of Israel will even make it through the tribulation. So before we get a little judgy of David, we might stop and think there's something very significant that is going on here. David is establishing the kingdom. So first he secures the border of Philistia and then he moves on Moab, executing two-thirds and leaving a third as a vassal nation. Some have questioned this even further and I'll, I'll just throw this one out just to muddy the waters a bit. David had distant Moabite relatives. Remember, great-grandma Ruth was a Moabite and his parents were safeguarded there while he fled from Saul, while, while he, Saul was on the hunt. David had taken his parents to Moab and yet now he's gonna wipe out two-thirds of Moab. What's going on? The old rabbis teach that the parents had been killed by the Moabites in treachery. And so David is now getting them back. But see, that's what we do. As human beings, we, we wanna come up with a reason why something happened. We have to justify it. The only justification I'll give you at this point is simply, again, David is establishing a kingdom. Read on, verse three. Then David defeated Hadadetzer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses that made them lame. They would not be able to be used in war again, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. And when the Arameans, that's Aramean, Aram, that's Syria, when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadetzer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. And then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadetzer, and brought them to Jerusalem. From Batah and from Barotai, cities of Hadadetzer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when Toy, king of Hamat, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadetzer, Toy sent Yoram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadetzer and defeated him. For Hadadetzer had been at war with Toy. He wasn't just toying with David. Uh -huh. uh, so he sent his son to him. And Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and of bronze. 
Well, King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold which he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued from Aram, that's Syria, and Moab, and the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, and Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadetzer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the valley of salt. Arameans in the valley. Aram's north. Valley of Salt is south. Oh well. He put garrisons in Edom or in Edom, and he put in all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. Okay, so this is a whole section of, of David establishing the borders, making the borders secure. David pounds Philistia to the west. He mows down Moab to the east. He zaps the people of, Zoab to, uh, of Zobah to the north. And he annihilates the Arameans to the north as well. And he extinguishes Edom to the south, or Edom. North, south, east, and west borders secure. That's what's being described for us here in chapter eight, the securing of the borders for the kingdom God had promised to David and to Israel. The key word in chapter eight, you see seven times. You'll see it in verse one, two, three, five, nine, 10, and 13. Again and again, sometimes it's written differently in the English. Same word in the Hebrew, and it is the word defeated. It is the key word of the chapter, nakah, defeated. It means strike, smite, beat, slay, kill, and that's what David did. With the nations surrounding him, what we get in, in the handful of verses here in this in-between section of scripture as we study is a rapid-fire report of David's great defeat of all the nations surrounding Israel. We read through it. We see as he's pushing back in all directions. And listen to me, David is doing what no other commander or judge or king had done before him. He is establishing the kingdom. Now stay with me on this because again, you can read this with a 21st century mindset kind of go, yeah, but it's brutal. It's war. War is brutal. This is the way war is and this is what happens with war. But we end up with some questions reading through this. I mean, what about his distant Moabite relations? What, what really happened there? And what about reserving horses? I mean, I didn't think the king was supposed to do that. And why are Arameans who are from Syria in the north, why are they way down south? And what's the deal with the gold, silver, and the bronze? One commentarian said it this way. He said, these verses harbor a small army of problems and questions for us, but no army could withstand David. And that's the point of the chapter. No army could withstand David. As to the Moabites and the extent of their defeat, listen, though his great-grandmother was a Moabitess, Ruth, you need to understand something. When it comes to the kingdom, faith is thicker than blood. Faith is thicker than blood. It is faith first. It's faith before family. Remember what, what the man said? I, I wanna go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. It is faith first. Those who will not come to faith in Jesus because, well, what about my dad? What about my brother? Well, what about my mother? It's not about them, it's about you. 
Faith is first. And by the way, and I've said this before, if a person doesn't come to faith, how much less possibility will father or mother or sister or brother find faith? So you come to faith. You trust the Lord. You follow him. Faith is thicker than blood. David recognizes he is securing the borders of his people Israel and he is finishing the job that Joshua began 500 years earlier. We are finally at that point. I don't know about you, but we got to the end of the book of Joshua and it was a little disappointing. All these conquests, all these fights, and there was so much that Israel had just not really taken hold of and it would cause them now five centuries of pain and heartache and struggle and death because they wouldn't take the kingdom at the first. David is now taking the kingdom. David is now establishing these borders. It is hard work. It is bloody work. Even to the far south, the Edomites. Remember what the Edomites did when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and wanted to make their way up to Canaan? They asked if they could pass through the land of Edom and the Edomites said, no way, stay off our land. So Moses and the children of Israel had to go all the way around them through Midian and up and over to the far side of the Jordan River and then cross into the land because Edom would not help their brothers. Faith is thicker than blood. And so there's a judgment here of these Edomites who, like all the rest of these nations, understand behind all of this, these nations were opposed to God. They were opposed to the Most High God, not just to Israel, but to this Yahweh God. We want our gods, the Ashtaroth, the Baals, you know, the Dagons. We don't want your God. And they stood in opposition. By the way, in answer to why Arameans seem to be down there. There are a couple of possibilities. Some have suggested that the word, verse 13, when it says, David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. Well, the Valley of Salt is the Dead Sea region. What are Arameans doing all the way down there? And some have suggested, well, maybe it's just a typo because the word for Aramean and the word from Edomite, they look very similar in the language. So perhaps it's a typo. Commentarians like to find typos. I, I, I don't buy it, honestly, you know, and maybe I'm just too much of a, a, you know, black and white, this is what it is. I don't think that's what's going on. I, I think it's Arameans, and he killed 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt because they were either, either mercenaries or they had aligned with Edom so that they could try to squeeze Israel from north and south, coming both directions. But whatever the situation, it didn't work. And David wiped them out, north, south, east, and west. Okay, but, but, but what about David reserving 100 horses for chariots? Why'd he do that? He, he shouldn't have done that. I mean, I thought the king wasn't supposed to. Don't multiply for yourself wives. Don't multiply for yourselves horses. And now he's in violation number two. And by the way, there's an awful lot of gold, silver, and bronze being piled up here too. Don't multiply for yourself riches. David seems to be violating right and left well, hold the thought on the, on the riches. But some think the keeping of horses for 100 chariots was wise, that militarily it was a measured approach. We're gonna keep some so that we can have some defense here. I'm just gonna suggest that there's a lapse in human thinking here. On David's part, that they were kept for chariots as a military backup or what we would say, just in case. 
just in case. You ever do that? You ever hang on to some horses just in case? Just in case can signal a lack of faith. I'm holding on to this just in case. I, I, I trust you, Lord, but just in case <laughs> this doesn't work out like, like I thought you were telling me, I, I'm keeping this over here. And that's what David seems to be doing. God works with him anyway. It's remarkable, but keeping something in reserved just in case the Lord doesn't come through. I think we're better off just having faith. And David knows better, but David's still a human being. I think Cam was the one who said it earlier today. I, I love that David is so human. We finally see him as real, you know? He's not the flannel graph of my childhood back in the high-tech, you know, flannel graphs days. He, he, he is not the, the picture that's painted of this mighty, great, he, he, he does amazing things. He's a man after God's own heart and he is just like you and me. And so he does have lapses in thinking and he does hang on to something just in case from time to time. My encouragement to you has been the Lord's encouragement to me this week. Rick, stop with the just in cases. Stop relying on the things that you think will catch you just in case I don't. We don't need those things. But what's up with all the gold and bronze and silver? Like we see there at the, uh, at the, at the end of uh, verse 10, down at the end, silver, gold, and bronze. We see in verse 11, David dedicated these to the Lord. Well, that's good. Silver and gold. And there's a very large amount of bronze, verse eight, shields of gold, verse seven. What about all of this stuff? David is preparing for the kingdom. More explicitly, David is preparing for the temple. In fact, he's gonna tell Solomon before his death, 1 Chronicles twenty two fourteen. now behold, with great pains, I have prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity and timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. It's David's contribution to the temple. We will see on Sunday and we'll talk about this, but David wants so badly to build God a house. He's sitting around on a relaxed, peaceful day in his palace, having established strength all around. And he thinks, here I sit in this beautiful palace and God is up there in a tent. Come on, I wanna build him a house. We'll see where that goes. David will not build the temple. Solomon will, but the Lord does allow David the pleasure of preparing for it. He will prepare the blueprints, he will prepare all the gold and silver and bronze and iron and all of these things and have it all ready to go so that Solomon then can finish the job. But listen, if the defeat of any of these nations or reading through this offends your 21st century mindset, I just have one thing to say about that and very simply it's this, David doesn't have to answer to you. And he doesn't have to answer to me either. David had only one to whom he answered, and that's the Lord God. And remember, this is the establishment of God's kingdom. That's why no army could withstand David. Look back in verse six, and this is repeated twice in the chapter. At the end of the verse, the Lord helped David wherever he went. Down to verse 14, the Lord helped David wherever he went. The Lord is the one who championed all of this. So if you have a problem with anything that takes place in chapter eight, you have a problem with the Lord because he's the one who helped David in all these battles. 
He's the one who gave David the strength. He's the one who led David forward in all of these nakaz, these valiant defeats. By the way, God doesn't have to answer to us either. But there's something else here that I think really explains why chapter eight is in the scriptures. Not just an historical rendering or reminder of how David had to wipe out these nations for the kingdom. The reason this is here in chapter eight is that conflict precedes the conflict. We see this throughout, but I'm talking about related to the kingdom of David and ultimately the kingdom of Christ. Conflict precedes the conquest. It happened in David's day. It will happen again in the day of the son of David. Conflict before conquest. How many of you like the chosen? All right. No judgment. I have now seen the first four episodes of season one. People have begged me now for a couple, you've got to watch the chosen. You've got to watch the chosen, Rick, which really made me not want to watch it. I'm telling you. And I, I was really hesitant for, for multiple reasons, and maybe someday I'll, I'll really get into that. But I was just hesitant because I'm like, if anyone adds to you a gospel other than what we've already given to you, they should be accursed. I mean, that's Galatians 1.8. That's a little stirring there. So you're gonna add to the story. Well, it's historical. It, it, it's, it's fictional, Rick. I understand that. I understand. But it's an adding to. And, and I'm, I'm not gonna go off. I'm, I'm really trying to hold myself back here. But, so I watched the first four episodes. I will tell you that Sunday morning I had a big problem during worship because when I closed my eyes, I saw Jonathan Rooney. <laughs> had to open my eyes. Lord, I am not worshiping Jonathan Rooney. Close my eyes again. There he was. That's just me. I'm a very visual guy. But, but, let me point out to you why you need to be careful. And, and if you love the show, fine. You know, some, some are like, hey, we've watched it all. I can't wait for the next season. Good, good for you, and that's great. Have your Bible open, please, because you are learning things that are not biblical. And I'll give you just one little example, and, and it ties into what we're talking about tonight. There is a moment in, I think it's the third episode, where the Jesus character, played by Jonathan Rumi, says, where do the Hebrew scriptures ever say Messiah would come as a warrior? Um, Psalm 2, Isaiah 11, Joel 3, Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, and I can give you more. In fact, the whole reason why the Jewish people missed Jesus in his first coming is they were looking for the warrior king. They were thinking he's gonna come conquer Rome. He's gonna come powerfully, and he's gonna come to fight. And the Hebrew scriptures are filled with, with this prophetic promise that he's gonna come in such power and glory. And you and I know he will. He will in his second coming, in his first coming. He came as the suffering Messiah. Remember what we started with, where Peter said, man, the prophets made careful inquiries and searches trying to understand at what time or, or what place the person of Christ, by the spirit of Christ within them, was gonna come related to the sufferings and the glories. First coming, suffering. Second coming, glory, power, warrior, Revelation 19. And so this, out of the mouth of this character, of this guy who's playing Jesus, where do the Hebrew scriptures ever say Messiah would be a warrior? Listen, there are even hints right here of Edom's future and Edom's future clashes 
in the establishment of the kingdom of Messiah. If you listen to Isaiah chapter 34, listen to this. My sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend upon judgment, for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Basra is Eden. And a great uh, slaughter in the land of Edom. And it's speaking of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon, which runs from Basra and Eden all the way up, all the way up to the valley of Megiddo, 200 miles that the Bible describes is gonna be the place of that final great war. Where in the Hebrew scriptures does it ever say Messiah would be a warrior? Right there, right there. Very clearly and explicitly. Over in Isaiah chapter 63, verse one. Who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, Jesus says. Why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? I have trod in the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And that is a prophecy of what will take place in Edom. So we look at David in chapter eight, and we say, well, he's establishing a kingdom, but man, look at all the brutality. Look at all that. Well, you know what, what happens when you establish a kingdom? You have to push back at all those who reject that kingdom. And that's what Jesus will do in his second coming, in his return. On the whole, Davis writes this, on the whole, men and nations do not long to receive, but live to resist Christ's reign. And that he will establish his rule at the last, not by popular demand, but by armed might. What do we get in the life of David but a picture of the life of the son of David? What we see in David establishing a kingdom reminds us that Jesus will come to establish a kingdom and Romans 8 verse 37 tells us in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is 2 Samuel chapter eight. That's the purpose of this, to show us the establishment of a kingdom. And that's what David is accomplishing here. So then we come to verse 15, and verses 15 through 18 is a summary now of everything that's taken place going back to 1 Samuel 15 and running right up through 2 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 15 says, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiatar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, who was over the Keratites and the Pelatites, and David's sons were chief 
ministers. And this is, again, militarily, uh, politically, spiritually, and even administratively, chapter eight now is a portrait. We have come to the settled kingdom of David, which is simply a picture in type of the settled king of our, uh, kingdom of our Lord Jesus. But turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 144. Psalm 144, we're gonna end there tonight. Psalm 144, written by David, a psalm of David, said at the end of the Psalms, and yet probably written right around this time, where David is sensing that settling of the establishment of his kingdom, a kingdom established by the very promise of God, going all the way back to Abraham, and now running through David. In fact, what's interesting is Abraham was promised that that his kingdom would run from the Nile all the way up to the Euphrates. Well, the destruction of the Arameans takes the northern tip of Israel all the way to the Euphrates. Now, it's not the full realization, but it is a, it's a picture of fulfillment, and it's enough that we realize God is now showing us, this is what I'm doing, and I am establishing my kingdom. Psalm 144, a psalm of David, blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. My loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Note this in verse three. Oh Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you think of him. I think that was a repeated refrain in the life of David. We read it first in Psalm 8. Psalm 8, probably written by a shepherd, David, on the hills of Bethlehem. Late at night, looking up at the stars and saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And he makes this very same statement. Well, he goes now from shepherd to warrior, and the statement remains the same. What is man? You take knowledge of him or the son of man that you think of him. Man, verse 4, is a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains that they may smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and confuse them. Stretch forth your hand from on high. Rescue me, deliver me out of great waters, out of the hand of aliens whose mouths speak deceit and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon the harp of 10 strings, I will sing praises to you, who gives salvation to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the evil sword. Rescue me and deliver me out of the hand of aliens whose mouth speaks deceit and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Let our sons in their youth be as grown-up plants and our daughters as corner pillars fashioned as for a palace. Let our garners be full, that's our granaries, furnishing every kind of produce. And our flocks bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. Let our cattle bear without mishap and without loss. Let there be no outcry in our streets. How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. See, 2 Samuel chapter eight is, is no mere in-between. David receives a, a real, if not final, a real fulfilled kingdom 
in his time by the help of the Lord. And that's why I believe we need to study these things. Let me end with this. It's interesting that as we study David in First and Second Samuel and we get back into these ancient times, there are certain words and phrases that, uh, that really, to be honest, they're not super relevant to us in our daily lives. Uh, phrases like rule, reign, crown, inheritance, kingdom. Now, these are words in our Christianese that we're very comfortable with. But if you're just, you know, coming in and sitting down and listening for the first time, you're like, what is this, the Lord of the Rings trilogy? What? You know, these words don't make a whole lot of sense. And even knowing that they're going to be relevant in Jesus' second coming, what about right now? What about the relevancy of this for us tonight? And the relevance is in verses six and 14, again of chapter eight. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. I repeat, the Lord helped David wherever he went. The word helped, note this, is yasha in the Hebrew is where we get the, the name Yeshua. It means saved. It is literally saved. The Lord saved David wherever he went. Who's gonna save you from sin? Who's gonna save you, rescue you from sorrow? Who's gonna help you wherever you go? I know of nothing more relevant than to recognize it is the Lord who helps me, who saves me by Yeshua wherever I go. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13, Joel 2, 32. And there will be, as Peter wrote, glories to follow, things into which angels long to look, amen? Father, thank you for your word to us. Help us to recognize in the establishment of the kingdom that there always, there is always conflict before conquest. There are those today who are set against you, Lord. And it's remarkable. You don't call us to be set against them. You told us, Lord Jesus, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That while the, the world and the enemy might throw all kinds of evil our direction, our response in building the kingdom, our fighting back is a fighting back in love and forgiveness, knowing that vengeance is yours. Father, we know that in all these conflicts, the kingdom will come. We are looking forward to gathering and celebrating it on Friday night. I'm gonna pray right now, Lord, and ask that we not get there. That you come get us before Yom Teruah. And if you don't come get us before, come get us on Yom Teruah. And if you don't come get us on Yom Teruah, I just pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you know the time, you know the day and the hour. And so we just trust you for that. But give us strength and confidence to inquire of you in all things and to know that our help comes from the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.